Welcome to episode 26 of Coffee and Circuses. After three episodes recorded at track, we're rounding off the track theme with a chat with this year's chair of the local organising committee, Phil Smither. In today's show, we're reflecting on track and any advice Phil has for any would-be conference organisers in the future, as well as discussing Phil's PhD, which looks at Richborough Roman Fort here in Kent. Phil talks about piecing together not only all the finds and phases from the site, but also the difficulty in tying together the various reports written by different people at different times. We're also discussing the trouble with Brexit analogies in the Roman world, and what led Phil to study archaeology, including his time spent excavating at Silchester, much like your wonderful host did as well. And we're also talking about a possible not suitable for work version of coffee and circuses called ale and circuses. Although now I think about it, I think I'd like to keep the alliteration in there. So maybe Cinzano and circuses, cognac and circuses, carling and circuses. Is there actually any alcohol that starts with a C that isn't disgusting? Anyway, thanks for joining me and on to the show. Also, drink responsibly. start really would be track so track was now a week and a half ago two weeks ago i actually can't two remember no weeks. two and a half weeks ago yeah two and a half weeks ago two yeah, and a half yeah. weeks ago yeah 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 just recovering from it yeah took the week off afterwards ended up really needing that see i just went straight back into marking afterwards i took like yeah. a day and then i was like, i just need to get my marking done although it took me a few days to really kick my hangover i think oh, i took i took a day and then I took another day, and by the time I taken the third, it was a bank holiday weekend. So I thought, yeah, take the week. But yeah, it went it went um, really well actually for what we were what we were hoping. The new ideas, the new different sessions, the new ways of running sessions as well. Miller and Zena's unplanned session at the very end was well attended, so I was quite pleased of doing something completely just off the cuff and mm. trying that new. That was. Yeah, I was pleased about how it went. That was about identity, marginalised identity? Yes, yeah, so about marginalised identity, somewhat of, one of a better word, taboo kind of subjects, ones that are subjects that have been marginalised in the field. And it was pretty much an offshoot of the keynote. But with having only told them at the AGM, say just about an hour and a half, two hours before, to go plan a session and run it for an hour and a half. I was really, really pleased that they were able to uh, put it off. Yeah, I think actually the unconference sessions were one of the real kind of standout successes of the conference, I felt. I I went to the nature one and that went really well. I really enjoyed the nature one. The idea of you had Matt and you had Jay both presented like short papers themselves, but they were kind of the starting points for discussion and just having people in a room kind of bouncing ideas around and somebody says this and somebody else interjects with something and somebody else then comes in and, and it was just great i really enjoyed it i think it's sometimes my favorite parts of conference sessions are the discussion at the end i mean you know it's great people doing papers and everything that's part of the main, one of the main reasons we go to conferences but having that discussion period at the end is where people's brains really start working. Yeah. You could say something and somebody else says something and, you know, just having those kind of ideas feeding in. Yeah. I feel the main, one of the main points behind them is you go to a conference and sometimes papers might run over two or three minutes. Then you have maybe five minutes for questions. And often you get one or two, but a lot of people are hanging around to ask the speaker a question after or make a comment or meet up. Um, to discuss research whereas in those sessions the idea is is yeah when you go to see papers you're going to see papers that it's something that's probably in your research area that you're interested in that you want to know more about but you don't have enough time to ask those questions and you don't have time to then also contribute in that way and find the other people in the room who might be doing the same thing so we did Jay's one on Canterbury and hopefully that might lead to, as he put it, more meetings between people who are doing research on Roman Kent and start to get a collective going to discuss that. And just having a few people from Canterbury Archaeological Trust, a few people who knew the archaeology, um, having Andy Gardner in there, who'd done interpretations on various bits and pieces. And that really helped. Just It was just a free-flowing discussion 
the whole time. Mm. It took a while to get going. People weren't too sure about when to jump in and maybe interrupt Jake and and contribute to the session. But after about 15 minutes or so, we were into a full flow and could have gone on for a lot longer. Mm. Yeah, it's... um. Yeah, I think overall, success, successful conference. We, we did yeah. well. Um, definitely a very successful party as well. Very, very successful party. Yeah, we, it was, what was it? The, <laughs> the first five people at the bar. Included you, Jake, and him. Jay, that was a good... Yep, yep, yep. yep. Got straight into the bar <laughs> and, oh, and tequila flowed thereafter. Oh, dear. So looking back, though, over, over track as, as chair of track, what do you think... I mean, moving forward... You know, if somebody listens to this in future, who's going to be organising track or a conference or whatever, what, what advice would you would you think you dole out now to somebody who's looking to to host a conference? What do you think you learned? Because I mean, track yeah. in itself is, yeah. I mean, as we came to find, it is quite the the behemoth. It can be. It, yeah. There's a lot of a lot of stuff to cover. Um, have contingencies, contingencies when it comes to budget, contingencies when it comes to um, potentially to sessions and papers because. What we're essentially asking is approximately just around 150 people to come to a conference, two-thirds of them contributing in some way to a session, either organising or giving a paper. Inevitably, you know, you're going to get emails in saying, I can't attend, I can't make, sorry, etc. It's only a few, but just be able to react to things on the fly and make decisions because the closer it gets to February, January, February, March, things then ramp up and while you're trying to confirm stuff, you're waiting for answers from people to be able to confirm stuff. So it's having these contingency plans in there in case, you no, know, okay, we can't do that anymore. What else could we do instead? Um, that's the, the big one. And just communication. Also having a group of people where you can double up. So one of you might be on holiday for a week or so. Someone's going to need to take over their their roles as well. So that would be... So for example, when Sophie was doing some of the finance stuff, it was coming over, it was coming through our shared Dropbox. We were passing... I was looking at it and just double-checking what I knew, what I had got hold of so if she ever did need somebody to add to it or to confirm stuff I was able to do it the other one is have someone who knows social media yeah <laughs> that was the one thing I I am not really on Twitter I barely do anything on Facebook it's not my bag so have someone you can hand that to which was you yeah yeah. <laughs> well I think you went alright yeah went okay. it went well but I mean I was I would have been all over the place with what to post what to do know when to post stuff you know that was that was a thing have people who have a good a good decent group six was i think a good number any fewer might have struggled any more i think there wouldn't have been enough to go around for people to do or one person would have been doing too much while one was doing too little so a good say five or six at least on an organizing committee for a conference of that size Mm. is the main thing how many tracks have you been to prior to this one okay so 2014 was reading and i was studying there at the time was that the first track yeah that was my first and that was a rack track and it was leicester the next year yes yeah yes it was yes yeah because i remember people coming round trying to get votes for for leicester that year and asking will you vote for us to host it so i didn't get to leicester but i think i was yeah i was finishing up my master's uh, we're well into my masters at that point. Then 2016 was Rome, and I didn't get to that, unfortunately. Um, I was just digging actually at the time, and then so then it would have been yeah 20. It was 2017. Edinburgh. Yeah. Durham. No Durham. Durham. So I did Durham, then Edinburgh. Now this. So yeah, I had one year on, two years off, and then three years. On so hopefully from here on it should be should be getting there every year. Yeah, there are just so many conferences to go to as it is, you know. And now I'm going to the Limes as well, 
Um, I've been to the last two of those. It's kind of mm. which ones to go to. Still no Vincent Lee, mate. I really want to go, but... Where's the next one? Do you know? No, Megan. No, Megan. No. So that should be an easy drive over, actually. Yeah, yeah. A few people are thinking of doing that. Um, it's an easy location to get to. Um, and hopefully it should be another singing bus, or another free singing bus, as it were. <laughs> a bit of a Lee tradition, apparently. What was the song? Or, or is there it's a mostly, song? It's mostly old either folk songs or end up making songs up about certain people or things so there's a lot of what should we do with a drunken sailor for some reason um there was there's something about you'll never go to heaven i was gonna say there's there's some sort of collect connection though i think between archaeology and and pirates that seem well, that's still just yeah. but the, the idea of archaeologists singing sea, sea shanties yeah. it's not something that surprises me that much yeah there's a song there's a song you'll never go to heaven it's mostly like call and response kind of songs so everyone can join in um and then there were about three singing buses at the last Limes. and it turned into yeah songs about so we're saying that this place um called Viminatium and it's a Roman fort there and it was all in barracks, where a lot of us were staying. Just anyway. to know, last Limos was Serbia? Yeah. Yeah, that's Serbia. So Serbia. So we're staying there, and then it's called Viminatium. So that turned into reworking um, My Darling Clementine. <laughs> so we were singing that on the bus all the way back from all of the trips. So it was a lot of singing, because they do trips every other every other day. You're going to give us a rendition now? Not in my life. <laughs> I have some recordings of of the bus, but yeah, I'm not. I'm definitely not the singer on the bus. <laughs> I'm one of them, but it's in a crowd. It gets lost, which is quite useful. So is the thing with the podcast. Whenever I ask people about stuff like that, like Jay refused to do his um, Matthew McConaughey. All oh, right, ask Jay to do his Matthew McConaughey impression. And if you ever mention Matthew McConaughey around Jay, split second later, you'll start doing it. When we're on the podcast, just point blank refuse to do it. To be honest, I do the best Jar Jar Binks impression you've ever heard, but I've still not been willing to actually do it on the podcast. So maybe eventually, maybe eventually, but I'm going to be back in the job market soon. So when I've got a job, rather than just ruining my academic reputation entirely now. Maybe just do a drunken history version of a podcast and then it will come out. Yeah. Well, um, you know, at some point with track, or track, at some point with the podcast, I'm going to have to start doing kind of offshoot episodes. I think I'm going to, once I run out of guests, we're going to have to start figuring out something else to do with it. So uh, who knows? Who knows where it might go? But yeah. yeah. Drunk from Coffee and Circuses. Got a career name from Coffee and Circuses to Ale and Circuses. Not a bad idea, actually. Um, but anyway, we're kind of drifting yeah. on topic now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but so you're going in now into your last year of PhD, yeah, uh, so. writing up year of PhD. Yeah, so I'm what? Just about coming up halfway through that. Yeah. Yeah. And your, your PhD is joint between University of Kent and English Heritage, focusing on Richborough, the, the yeah. so called Saxon Shore Fort. Yeah. Um, although Richborough being a site that's occupied. Is it, pre, is it occupied in the pre Roman period or is it There's literally from. Some Iron Roman... Age, but it tends to be what we see around there. The um, couple of Iron Age ditches, but the pottery was supposedly runs up to about 75 BC or so. And there are various other ditched enclosures around the area that could have been left around that time, even maybe slightly later with the Caesarean expeditions over here. And that's when that area could have changed up. But the way I like to talk about Richborough, the way I introduce it to people who haven't been or heard of it, is it top and tails Roman Britain? Mm. It's that place where, controversially enough, did the Romans land there as part of the invasion? I'd say yes, probably part of it as amongst other sites. But then most likely um, once the once the island's told you're on your own, we're off. That's when, which was like one of the last places, to, especially in Kent and on the coast, to see that transition. So your PhD, though, is looking at Richborough, Throughout the Roman period, correct? Yeah. Although a lot of what you do focuses more on the later period. Yeah, I think originally the the premise of the PhD was to look at the military occupation at Richborough. So they picked out what they considered objects that I could look at in relation to that, which pretty much included it was military objects and tools. And 
put military objects in air quotes, and that's whatever you find on a military site, really. Um, but then that quickly expanded. So once I saw the collection and saw what was in there, I started to think, what could I include? What should I exclude? And it was really a big sorting task at the very beginning. That's now thankfully ended. So when I say sorting task, for example, the original notebooks are called about 5,556 small finds, as far as I can remember. That's now up to 8,700 because of how many we've identified as individual objects and even how many that were missed in the original cataloging process. And I'm looking at approximately 1,400 of those. So it's only it's a tiny amount, really, compared to the whole collection and then all of the glass, the pottery, and the various other bits and pieces from the site and the masonry that we've got as well. So it focuses on that. And then those objects I'm focusing on are in the early and late period. So 43 up until around about 85, 90, when the monument's constructed on the site. Then from... That's the Archer Domitian? Yeah. yeah. And it is now, as far as we could tell from what the stratigraphy was saying, it's Domitianic. It's not Vespasianic, which makes a lot more sense when I start looking at other features on the site. Then we start looking at the, so the Shawfort period, which was said to have started around about the 260s. And originally, I was going along with that because we were having a problem with understanding where the east wall was or where the east wall stood and after years of driving tony wilmot mad i found one coin in the archive which explained it all um we'll put the last piece of the puzzle in at least and then that started making me think well this wouldn't mean it's say gallic empire example found a couple of other coins that were missed that were corrosion in the bottom of a couple of the ditches showed that they were later. So now actually we're looking at Richborough being circa AD 290, 292 for the walls going up. So I'm looking at those two periods now. Um, and it makes a lot more sense because we do have a lot of, a lack of third century material. When does Constantius Chloris land? Is that after that day or is that? No, that's that is after that day. So the walls are Carousian slash... Is Electon even a term? Do we say Electon? Uh, I guess it kind of is, because he was on his own for at least what, a year and a half or so. Yeah. Um, but it puts it in line with Pevensey. And the one thing, when I look at the, the line of the Shawforts, actually, in that period, I say, like I said, actually, I do look at the later quite a bit more, because there isn't as much to say about the earlier period, but mm. there's a lot to say about that Shawfort period. It puts it in line with the dates they got from the Dendro and from the coin from Pevensey. And presuming that that coin and that doesn't um, show a reconstruction of part of it or a mending of part of it, then you know, Richborough kind of plugs a gap between Recover and Dover and Pevensey plugs a gap between Porchester and Lim. It's most adding to what is there. But it does look like if it is some sort of system... It's gradual over that period, and it looks to be Corrosia. So, but as we were saying in the Canterbury, going back to track actually, in the Canterbury session, this came up as a point, and I think it was Andy made the point that these walls are going up, especially even around towns at that period. Does it really matter who's putting them up? Is it showing that there is just this air of fear around that time, around the 260s, 70s, 80s, into the 290s, which is cause, which is part of this. Does it matter if it's Gallic Empire, if it's Karazis, it's usurpers in general does, over that time? Does it work, though, to make an analogy there between a fort and a town for walls? Because with towns, walls yeah. are a status symbol, so there's nothing necessarily inherent about a no, town exactly. constructed walls that's about fear. Whereas if you've got a fort that's got walls yeah. that are putting up, then there seems to be more of a kind of practical aspect to that yeah i mean it tends i mean both arguments have been made either way before people see walls as either status and or defensive it's a it's a difficult one to to make the analogy there but i guess seeing some of them are going up at similar times whether the analogy is right probably the same sort of people building them for whatever reason 
Um, we just don't really know what what was actually going on at that point. And, mm. you know, people try to also tie these things to the historical events that are recorded. And to say Carosis was around from 285, you know, you can't just say, oh, well, all the shore forts appeared in 285 because that's just not the case. So it's a difficult one to... Which was a difficult one to figure out. The shore forts at that time were a difficult one to figure out. Um, what I'm mostly interested in is what happens after that because then you've got these whacking great forts on the coast which are now not being used by the people who built them but are being occupied and then what the reasons there is who's occupying them after that and who's occupying them as we get into the 5th century so I'm more interested in that side of it rather than working out you know what's the reason Mm. you know that's probably lost to history really it's mostly from what you said previously mostly civilian then it seems to become as in like it's there's yeah. less of a apparent what might I say military identity from the assemblage is that a good way of putting it um, from the from the late assemblage so I'll give one example where we've got these big pebble patches on the site and it was pointed out by Barry Cunliffe in, one, in the last report that you know, there was gaps for strip buildings between them and there were halves around there there were clearly buildings in that area and now found a couple of others in other areas of the fort which shows the same thing but the last occupation layers are heavily domestic it's spoons hairpins other personal adornment spindle whirls that kind of thing Maybe a couple of military bits, but they're just odd fittings. So in the very last layers, it's looking like it's switched to this early 5th century civilian occupation. Whether it's those who stayed behind, whether it's new people moving in. You know, some might have decided to go across the channel, some might have decided to stay. It's unclear what that is exactly, but... It shows it shows continuation in occupation into the fifth century, and if we are to believe things like the Anglo-Saxon chronicles and the raids that happen, especially the ones recorded at Pevensey, if you're going to raid somewhere, there's someone and something worth raiding. Mm. So I would not be surprised if there was some early fifth century occupation, at least two or three, maybe more of the shore forts. A lot of them don't necessarily show it, but that's the interpretation of the coin evidence. Now, it could be that there's an occupation going on there, but the sites just aren't adding coins after 370. Whereas Richborough has coins, but it has 22,000 of the things. So there's a bit of a discrepancy in the way it's interpreted. I wouldn't be surprised if there was occupation through the fifth into the 5th century, all of them. Is there an argument to be made that somewhere like Richborough perhaps is better connected with what is going on in northern Gaul than it would be with, say, what's going on in Hadrian's Wall. Would that be too much of a jump? Or? No, hugely. I mean... I mean, there's still quite got, a lot of yeah. interconnectivity that goes on, even into the post-Roman period. I mean, one of the... I'm trying to get a hold of a translation of it at the moment, and the only place I've found that around here that seems to have a translation is the British Library. The life of Germanus of Auxier, who comes yeah. across from Gaul in the 5th century... Uh, hangs around for a bit and then goes back and then comes back briefly and then goes back again. But he comes over and he leads like a group against the Picts and the Saxons, yeah. I think I think it is. But it just sounds like a very interesting interesting document. Uh, but that's happening during the 5th century. Um, but it clearly demonstrates that there is still very much a link between Britain and the mainland of people going backwards and forwards. Yeah. So, I mean, would you think Richborough as a, as a sh- shore fort um, on the coast is going to have more of a connection with what is going on across the channel than it would do with the other end of Britain. Well, most likely, because, I mean, think about the 5th century and you get, you know, probably local cultures bring up various different groups who have different identities and then also probably reform and renew different identities in, in different regions of Britain, which probably isn't then connected up to Adrian's Wall as much as it would have been in the 100, 200, and 300 years prior where you've got, you know, central Roman troops going up and down the country and being um, thoughts being what's the word I'm looking for 
manned. Yeah, manned garrisons by, you know, just changing where where units are. Um, when it comes to that fifth century, I just don't see the same activity happening on Hadrian's Wall. Maybe not even the same activity that's happening out in the West. It's very much connected to the continent still, just because just because there isn't any maybe official link doesn't mean people aren't going backs and forwards, doesn't mean um, if there were any major ones, any major trade links still carrying on, people still had links to Britain, no matter what Rome or whoever said at the time. That's, I think that's very much the case. Just something to bear in mind when people bang on about the first Brexit. Yeah, the amount that, of... That, those, that target gets rolled out so many times now, particularly with Carousius, but just generally yeah. speaking, and... You know, the supposed yeah. break in around 410 or early 5th century. Well, look, it's hard to say. It's, it's, I don't like the analogy at all because ev- I've seen so many articles in various, in some archaeology magazines or just newspapers where it said Carousius and the first Brexit yeah. or the 410 He thing. didn't even break away. He wanted no. to be a co-emperor. Yeah. That was... that. But then even the 410, it's the opposite, if anything. Yeah. You know, it's Britain being abandoned by Europe. Yeah. Well, they send they send letters, don't they, to people like Aetius and others later on. Yeah. Uh, asking asking for help, come back. And, yeah. Um, so if anything, it's the opposite. That's yeah. true. It's I don't know if there's an, if someone could coin a term for the opposite if yeah. Europe wants to get rid of the UK, but your exit. <laughs> <laughs> Something um, around there, but yeah, I see these articles and then it. It feels like clickbait. Oh, yeah, it is. I mean, that's always... It, it know, really that's, is, that's it because is. you never see it in the article. Yeah, yeah. You know, they talk about... They just talk about the historical side of it without mentioning Brexit again. There's probably different. there's probably an element of that in some cases as well where the person who's written the article is not the person that writes the title no, that's put on the website or in the magazine or whatever. Those yeah. things are usually chosen by editors and, as you say, it's just about clickbait or getting people to buy the magazine or whatever. Yeah, so none of those analogies work. I mean, one of the analogies I do like, and again... Analogies can only go so far. So one I have talked about is almost like Second World War, make do amend. There's a lot of recycling going on at Richborough, melting down old objects, reforming them from old broken ones. And they are probably very much cut off from the from the mainland and because of the troubles are going on in the Empire at that time. And could possibly be seen as, you know, the breadbasket of the West, they're being, they're supplying those armies that are trying to fight off all the, all the revolts that are happening, all the incomers to the empire, and it's, it's a troubled time. Mm. So you would expect, you know, less supply to be happening. I mean, one of my favourites is, um, it's a couple of um, buckles, probably horse buckles, horse tack buckles, that kind of thing, which have been made from um, bracelets. You can just see the bracelet has just been bent, a pin put through, the ends looped over. To see that level they're going to, to create something new or to fix a problem they've got, shows some sort of supply issue. Mm. So, quickly, just explain to me again how the church is not actually a church. <laughs> the church is not actually a church because it's probably not a church. <laughs> Um, by, by the church you talk about the, yeah. not the later one but the one that's in the supposed corner next yeah so pot. you've been asking me a bit about this building because of um, what was what was written about it so in the northwest corner of the fort there is a a building that's been drawn out four sides of it being um, interpreted whereas only two sides actually have any evidence of uh, foundations to it and it's just it's like two by four blocks of masonry from the arch when it was pulled down. There were several of these blocks lying around the site and it's quite possible that they got pulled out in later years, maybe by farmers hitting them with a plough or anything like that. So they may have been part of the building. They were just scattered across the site and there's no real reason for that. But the building is only known on two sides. So it could even be some open-aired lean-to yeah. type thing. I think it was but, Chris Spire Green that mentioned that to me. And yeah. he said it, and I was like, oh, sh- shit. Like, yeah. like, I saw it, and I was like, 
I don't know why that never occurred to me before. They're looking at not the inside of a building, they're looking at the outside of a building that's running around the in- yeah. interior of the fort wall. It's like, oh. It's possible. It explains explains it. bit of a problem with that is, is people have suggested, because you've got the font there in the same area, now the key with the font is it hasn't, and it has been related to that building because of examples from elsewhere. Um, I think they're in France and Yeah, Germany, Germany and the Rhineland, like yeah. The difficulty is, is the font has no stratigraphic relationship with those layers around that building. Mm. So you can't link one with the other. So the building is most likely mid-4th century, probably somewhere around 360s. There is very little coin evidence in that area after that, and very few finds. So the problem is that the building seems to have stood in isolation and possibly even not been used much. The problem with the lean-to idea is you'd expect to see some support in the fort wall and there really isn't anything. Mm. There's nothing to suggest that anything was stuck into the wall to support a roof on that building. Yeah. Um, so what they did suggest were was the font could have been in a separate building that was leaning against the fort wall. Difficulty with that is there are two pits in that area that um, post a the building so if the fort font is at the same time you've got two rubbish pits around there as well right near it which wouldn't make a lot of sense no um so we're trying to look in that area but it's just because there is there are no coins after the 340s which is where the dating comes from but even just looking through the notebooks the area is barren of finds maybe a couple of tools and no personal adornment no military bits in that area when compared to other areas of the fort. So if it is a building and if it is, as Brown suggested, that shape, what are they using it for? And it could just be a meeting hall or a basilica. Just well, I mean, so like this this whole idea about having an apse is a big yeah. jump. Like, that's, a, that's a big Oh, yeah, jump. there's no evidence it's, of the apse whatsoever. It's, uh, you know, it's, I don't know. I well, mean, it's just because of the font. Yeah, it's I mean, as I was saying, it's, it's, you know, it's a tenuous link and I don't know, it's, it's a... Is a font always a font? I guess is the question. Well, I mean, you know, even if it is a font of some sorts, does it have to be? I don't know. You know, there's a, there's it's a whole better reason. than the interpretation at the time, which was a garden fountain. Well, I mean, I was just thinking, like, you know, something to catch water or something. Yeah. Something to catch water, sure. But there is, they were suggesting there was a house around there with having no idea of yeah. where it was. Yeah, the original, the original excavation notes often. Suggest things that just seem a bit. Is that all strange. bush fox? Yeah, it's all the notes there, but a lot of the problem is that anything after 1931, I mean, he had his visiting Colchester and visiting the excavations there and had an accident where one of the trenches fell in on him. Oh, really? And he I was, was going to ask you about yeah. bush fox stories, actually. Yeah, <laughs> he was fairly bed bound until the end of his life. Um, Eileen Henderson wrote in her autobiography that she was taking notes to his bedside on the excavation. So You've got the first three reports that come out in the 1920s up to 1932. The fourth report is 1949. The last one is 1968, well after his death. And it was seemed to be something that was there needed writing up. I've even looked through some of the old correspondence to... Um, what's his name? Oh, the guy who used to work... He did Ministry of Works at the time. and uh, Dunning. He was trying to find who was going to write it up, and Eileen Henderson was due to in the 1950s, and for whatever reason, that didn't happen. So it took a long time for these to come out. So eventually, you've got people, like in many cases, writing these reports that weren't there at the time and trying to make head and, tail, head and tails of them. So it's really difficult to... It's really difficult to get your head around the later excavations, which is frustrating because they're the better excavations. They really are the better ones. Um, it's funny how archaeology is like a big jigsaw that you have to put back together, and that's when it comes out of the ground. But then you have that added layer of dealing with essentially what are, in, in some respects, still... You, I don't know if you would class them as being antiquarians, but they're still not a million miles away, right? I mean, no, they you know, were. It's still that kind of transitionary period towards archaeology as we kind of know it nowadays. Yeah, I mean... Not I mean, that's the, where similar sort of times, like the wheelers and people like that yeah. around. Yeah. I mean, at the, the time, yeah, is when, they, when the early Colchester excavations were going on. Um, 
it wasn't long after the Corbridge ones as well, or if uh, if not, some of it at the same time. And not to not for using it as an insulting term, but they were they were wall chasing at one point because okay. they they saw what they saw in the aerial photography and went straight for those areas. The first areas they excavated is where they could see the masonry structures. Um, it's only until you get to the 1930s or so that they actually start to excavate even some of the upper layers. So the first first winter, 1924-25, second winter even, they do a big sweep across the site and take out the top three feet over probably just over 50% of the site. And all of that contained archaeology. Even if it was just destruction layers of some of the buildings that have been around, it contained archaeology. So all we get is, in the report, says this object was found in the topsoil, black earth, top stuff, top layer, just various different um, permutations of this was found in this three feet that we whipped out. And then later on, they start to excavate some parts of that and actually record well where it is. But the biggest problem I found of it is inconsistency. Um, I mean, you'll find that on any excavation in some, at any time, really. But they dug 60 sections before they started to take everything out. So they were doing, they were digging sections. It was all as you'd expect. And on three of those, they record the position of every coin and every piece of pottery. But only on three of them. So you can't really use it and extrapolate across the site. Mm. That's where it becomes really difficult so you get this great bit of evidence in one area and then in another you might know from the reports or from the actual excavation notes you might know more about the weather that day than where they found hmm. a particular object yeah so that's where it gets quite difficult okay yeah it's a it's it's well recorded there's a lot of material there it's just going to need a very big project to put it all together there is going to be an upcoming, well, Richborough in particular is, is yeah. going to be having work done in the coming years, right? And so there's the plans obviously in place for the um, museum display. So redisplaying that museum because it, it could really do with that as well. Um, and to tell new stories about Richborough because when I've been to the site, you'll say a bit about Richborough and then you've got a picture of one of the Colchester temples there for <laughs> some reason it's like yeah okay you can show examples but you kind of want this to be 90% rich for her um, maybe some other bits and pieces there's ideas of investigating the amphitheater as well because the big problem with the site is the bit that was excavated was inside the walls with some of it done outside there are fields it's fields of geophysics that shows that they're where the port town was. But that would need a lot of investigation, and we don't even have a proper date for the amphitheatre either. So that could shed a lot of light on what it's built over. You know, did it come after the port town? Did it just take out part of the port town and add to it? There's a lot that could be investigated. So to say Richborough, to say I'm studying Richborough, I'm studying that bit of Richborough within the walls and then everything else still needs still needs looking at. And there's yeah, there's a lot of archaeology out yeah. there. It's good because you know you're gonna find stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're you're actually guaranteed you're gonna find stuff. And what'll end up happening is inevitably if they ever manage to excavate those fields, something two fields over might end up explaining what's going on inside the walls or where be, before the walls were there be an interesting so, site for a field school that's all i'm saying yeah <laughs> there's 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 years of a project in that oh yeah could be yeah. its own silchester which brings me yeah. brings me down to my yeah where i'm going next in the conversation which mm. is uh tell me about how you well starting off how, how, how do you get into archaeology what led you down this road which um, inevitably did take you to to silchester at one point yeah or so several points I at least probably blame my granddad for it um, because he used to babysit me when I was um, probably about seven, eight, nine. And apart from having watched every Jean-Claude Van Damme and Steven Seagal movie by the time I was nine years old, um, he used to tell me stories about his childhood and, 
and wartime stories and various things. Um, and also show me things like his coin collection. I'll just bring out random old objects. And I guess that's where I got it from. Because actually, after that, when I got into secondary school, I was heading towards film and TV production, oddly. I don't know what really led me into that. But then afterwards, I was just sitting alongside um, the river in Kingston one day and thinking about university, chatting to a friend. And I said about either ancient history and archaeology or film. And I just went with ancient history and archaeology, put in my UCAP application. This was about four years after I finished college. So three or four years after. Um, so the application process was a lot easier. I wasn't rushing around at college worrying, have I got enough points? Have I got mm. the grades trying to finish at work? Yeah, just applied. Applied to the regular five places. Picked Reading. It was just, I went there for an open day love the place and just decided yeah this is where I want to study mm. so yeah reading for my undergraduate reading for my masters and then here for the PhD at Kent mm. um it's still, bit Silchester in between yeah uh, any reminiscences of Silchester you want to mention there's Silchester stuff there's not so at all to go, go yeah, down you know, remember that you know we'll, we'll save some of those for Ireland um Ireland circuses I think um <laughs> well actually I was Actually, Silchester wasn't, you know, for many of it, Reading, it's their first excavation. Yeah. It wasn't mine. I was oh, really? due to go for four weeks. Um, but then I dropped doing two of those because I was a joint honour, so you didn't have to do it. Um, but they recommended it. All oh, right. So, you, yeah. Do you know four, how to do two was, weeks or something? That's why. There's four weeks compulsory if you were straight archaeology. Yeah. But it was, you could do two or four weeks as a joint honours, but yeah. it wasn't compulsory. Oh, okay. I know. I remember doing it. I was doing but. <laughs> I um I just went I didn't I was just worth doing anyway. Oh yeah. But yeah, I was in um Catalonia for my oh. first excavation with two others from Reading. There was a link between the University of Barcelona and the classics department at Reading. Um through old friends. And yeah, they had a few places open, a few of us went out um out there. And I stayed out there for about like two and a half weeks or so, then flew back and practically went straight back into Sil- straight into Silchester for two weeks there. Um, then the summer afterwards, didn't do Silchester. That was Portugal. I was in for five weeks. Then the following summer was one of the junior was one of the trainees, um, which was quite funny because Amanda, I mean, she's. Amazingly lovely lady, and she, yeah, she wanted to include everyone, I guess. And so, obviously, budgeting for an excavation, things like that. So, and experience wise as well, if you went in second year, you could I can't remember what the position was, you had a bit more responsibility, and then you could go on to be a trainee in third year, uh, in your third year there. But I didn't have that, so it made me a junior trainee. So, I ended up getting nicknamed Junior for the entire season. <laughs> So that wasn't a Scottish was accent a, as well when people said it. A few of them did as well. Yeah, so I got a couple of fines trays appear at the at the fines up as I was that's where I was working, which said for junior only, and they were usually filled with rubbish and coke labels. Um, that's where was, you start get you start yeah. going down the route of mainly like points yeah. analysis, and that's what kind of yeah that's led you I to mean, the PhD now. I'd done a few essays on fines, bits and pieces. My tutor was um, Heller Eckhart, so mm. going so fines made sense for me it's the thing I learned a lot about so that's where I went with that um but yeah Silchester was a was a fun one I say you remember the parties there all the time eventually most of them there are bits of them but (laughs) you remember bits I was there but I was there pretty much at the end I think during my masters I just went and kind of hung out for two weeks Mm. or so um just having a couple of weeks off and we decided, it was either in my last proper season now, that one, to excavate the marquee. So, uh, I'm a student's son, Tony, who doesn't do archaeology anymore, but he opened up a test pit, a shallow test pit, huh. in, the, um, in the marquee. And it's funny how, you know, 19, 20 years of parties in there can... Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. so it was just a, that, there yeah. was the um, there was the uh, confetti horizon. That was my favourite layer of that. 
Um, Do you know what year that would have been? Has anybody got any ideas? Yeah, unfortunately, there was no coins in there. And that's data. But... I'm just trying to think of. I'm just trying to think of parties because I, I only went for two years. Because my last year was spent at, uh, when I was an undergraduate was spent at Le Minge. Ah, right. uh, when they were Gabor, formerly of the University of Kent as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. I, yeah that's, I, think that might, I think that might have been my second year actually. With all the confetti. Yeah, yeah, there was a confetti horizon in there. There was various prosecco bottles, and it was that kind of thing. The mo- way we found the most was around the doorways, so people dropping stuff, and so it really fit. Yeah, I know. I've never thought about that an excavation of the actual campsite area. Know, one of my That's first, amazing. one of the first talks I went to at Reading was John Crichton talking about the geophysics at Silchester, and they actually did the camping field, and there were just red dots everywhere in this. The, the geophysics was just distorted so much, but it was all the metal bottle caps. <laughs> So you couldn't get any readings from the camping field because it was just tent pegs and bottle caps. Yeah. Metal tent pegs and bottle caps everywhere. God. Okay, I just remember the fact that being, you know, mainly, well, I mean, it was the largest excavation in the country at the time. And the fact that you had the vast majority of people there were students as well. The, the I'm not going to go into detail, but the crap that we used to drink because people didn't yeah. have the money to like go out like you had like the beer festival and stuff which was great but you know on a, on a kind of more day-to-day basis more generally if you didn't go down to the to the pub like right. the stuff that you just drank on a day-to-day basis or or indeed like for some of the parties was just oh my god oh yeah took the cheapest crap from like sainsbury's or tesco's oh yeah the sainsbury's trips were great that was always the always the fun one that was yeah, got those parties went on, and and then we had the beer festival as well. Which were they doing that when you were there? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, because oh. I think I don't know With the Calais with deceiver. It, it's it's uh, it's like a niche conversation about Silchester now, but yeah. I I think the first year I was there, the beer festival and the party was separate, and then my second year they combined them into one thing, which kind of made a lot more sense, really. Yeah, I just think. Actually, thinking about just archaeologists in general with this, what I loved about it is because as I was at the the end of Insula 9 and as I were opening up Insula 3, apart from pulling out 1.3 tonnes in the first season of building material that had just been chucked in the backfill, because that's what they were going through was the old Victorian trenches, there were um, 19th century wine bottles coming out. <laughs> so it's a case of, I just looked at, looked at the group there and looked at the marquee and went, yeah. Things never change, really. No, no, that is so probably came from their their yeah. evenings at, at the site. So yeah, we were pulling out so much Victorian stuff um, that they just chucked away. It's quite fun. The more things change, the more they stay the same. <laughs> and a bit under that somewhere, oh, a bunch yeah. of like Roman drinking vessels as well. Um, oh, yeah. So, but moving towards uh, wrapping up, then. So, um, if I mean, have you got anything you want to you want to push, advertise, etc. Um, nothing I think of at the moment. I mean, come about, to Richborough. Thinking, yeah, come to Richborough. Just visit the site anyway, because it's a lovely site, you know, and it's not that far away from Sandwich, which is very no, picturesque a, as well. And that's actually, you know, shameless plug because they're part funding me. Um, but yeah, I, this is why I actually love being in Kent because I came down when I was on excavation with OA um, in 2013 or so, and I took the chance to join English Heritage and visit loads of sites and then I've done the same you know, where are you doing with OA around here? Uh, Oxford Archaeology for the... I was Ramsgate uh, okay. it's um, weird how much Oxford Archaeology does work around here when yeah. I worked for them I came down here to dig in Faversham and then Starry yeah but what, Yeah, it was a yeah they do come down here a bit actually but then it was a case of yeah I just I joined English Heritage and just took and if you look at a map of their sites there's loads around Kent so yeah come to Richborough and visit you know Dover Castle is amazing as well. Come on the first, actually, mm-hmm. come on the first Friday of each month to Dover because on the first Friday we open up the stores and a few rooms in the stores to show what's going on in there, like a behind the scenes look. And I've put on a small um, exhibition that we do alongside that, and that's on recycling at Richborough. Okay. Um, so trying to keep it a bit contemporary as well, a contemporary issue that we've got as it is. And that's why I'm also really enjoying studying that because the amount of modern analogies you can make and you know, thinking about what we do with our own stuff that, you know, we've been recycling for millennia, probably even, you know, hundreds of thousands of years using something for something else. So it's now as well the uh, current, uh, literally the current climate, yeah. recycling is a big issue. And 
yeah, we were talking earlier about <laughs> about oh, people when they talk about the first Brexit and try to link sometimes the present with the past tenuously, but you know, as you're saying, there's there's still stuff that we can learn though in regards to to recycling, and yeah. the, that's uh, we were talking before at track as well about how it's better to sell or it seems to work better. People are more open to people telling them how we can improve things like the environment if you couch it in terms of things that people did in the past rather yeah. than we need to do this in the future. Uh, and I guess that's one way of doing it, by demonstrating that recycling was a big thing in the, well, I mean, you could say going from the, the, the late to post-Roman to Anglo-Saxon yeah. period. Yeah, and it's one of these It's also one of these issues that you almost, you almost pick up as a child in school when you're making, you know, like, macaroni pictures or things with bottle caps you know you remember you remember being at school and bringing yeah. a whole load of toilet rolls to make various bits and pieces you're almost picking up then and then it's almost something that as you get older become more wasteful mm. it's a strange it's very interesting there's probably a very interesting paper in there uh, if they yeah. do a a session next year again at track which i imagine they will do on the environment yeah. issues of recycling recycling in the past and recycling today yeah because i suppose in some respects that's what we do with archaeology we we dig out of the ground it used to be used for something else and now we stick it in a museum as a object for people to look at which in itself is a form of recycling i suppose yeah except we're kind of adding to it digging it out of the ground yeah you know there's a then there's a bigger issue of where you store stuff eventually when you dig it out of the ground and that's a whole other that's interesting because people say to me or someone actually said to me recently I'm surprised, this is a non-archaeologist, they said they were surprised that there's there's much left to actually dig anymore. And I'm like, dig, finding stuff to dig or stuff to excavate is not the problem. There's yeah. still pr- plenty left to excavate. The problem is, where do we put it all when we've got it out of the ground? Nobody has any space anymore. Yeah, and once people are moved into a new store, they're almost thinking about moving out to a bigger one because they can see 10 years down the line, this is not going to be enough. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, I'm getting deep now. There's all kind of conversations shoot after that. But yeah, exactly. I think we'll, we'll call it there for, yeah. for now, though. But, uh, right, well, thanks a lot for doing this. Yeah, thanks. And, uh, yeah, well, I suppose the other thing, just to quickly note, is it won't come about anytime soon, but one day down the line we'll have the track 2019, not proceedings, but the Trag yeah. journal, the Jurassic uh, yeah, we'll World journal will be guest edited by people from track 2019. So. Yeah, so that's something to look out for and see what. A year from now, but when the next track rolls around, it will be should be around. Yeah, be out, and then hopefully we'll see a lot more people at the the next track in uh, in Croatia. Yeah, Diocletian's Palace. Woo! That's exciting. That's gonna be fun. (laughs) Yeah, I can't wait for that. Right, thank you very much.